1: You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast.
0: Get the VPN that we trust to protect our online privacy when big bad tech is at the door. Visit expressvpn.com slash and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log expressvpn.com
1: slash mission log to learn more. Mission Log, A Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast, Episode 463, Resistance.
2: Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm
0: Norman Lau. On every episode of Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek, getting to know the characters and the stories they tell, pulling it apart for the morals, meanings, and
2: messages, and asking ourselves if it stands the test of time. This week, Resistance, the one where a prison escape may seem futile unless you work together as a team and bring along one kindly but deluded old man to serve as a distraction. John will be right back with trivia as soon as I tell all of you
0: how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform, And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion, sans deluded old man. With this week's trivia. I, I am the deluded old man. So oh, my mistake, my mistake. My
2: okay. mistake. Yeah. All right. Trivia for this week's episode, Resistance. We have a story by Michael Jan Friedman and Kevin J. Ryan. Well the names may not be familiar specifically to followers of Star Trek on TV, but they are both very well known in the expansive universe that is the Star Trek novels. Michael has written no fewer than 35 of those books, including the popular Stargazer series. That doesn't even include the comics, the nonfiction reference, and articles all under his name. Then there's Kevin, who was a longtime editor at Pocket Books with their Star Trek line. He also was immersed in both the fiction and nonfiction side of the stories, and he worked on both the Star Trek Encyclopedia and the Deep Space Nine Companion. So, while these two collaborated a lot, and while they pitched multiple times over the years, this was the single piece that earned them both a TV writing credit. They had pitched three stories to Jerry Taylor early on for Voyager, and this was the one that she bought. Although, the focus was originally quite different, with Balana being the center character, and the aliens being the return of our old friends, the Kazon Those were elements that Jerry had switched up and then brought the teleplay assignment over to new staff writer Lisa Klink. This was her first assignment on Voyager, and to her surprise, most of all, it was a dense and complicated show with a lot of drama and the production concerns of new sets and guest stars that could eat up a budget really fast. In addition to the production stress, Lisa was tasked by Jerry to do her own rewrite and script polish, and it was really a trial by fire. Let's not forget that we first mentioned Lisa on the DS9 episode, Hippocratic Oath, for which she got a story and teleplay credit. Uh, That was after she had joined Voyager as a staff writer in 1995. The episode was directed by Wienrich Kolbe, and we last mentioned Rick on Initiations, which he directed for Voyager. This is one of those episodes where he says he used a pretty light hand with his actors, putting his trust in the performances and letting them lead the way. Now, speaking of those actors, let's meet our guest stars. We do encounter a few new faces here. The frequent Star Trek guest star and recognizable genre actor, Glenn Morshauer, appears here as a Mokra guard. We first mentioned him way back in TNG, where he appeared in Peak Performance and Starship Mine. He has so many TV and feature film credits. I'm just still endlessly entertained that he's in the Transformers franchise where he plays General Morshauer, uh, both in some of the films and the ride at Universal Studios. So catch him there. Tom Todorov plays the resistance contact Dared, and this, his only track appearance, comes relatively early in his professional career on camera. A number of roles followed, but Tom also works behind the scenes and has become a very busy acting voice and dialect coach in the industry. Alan Scarfe plays Agris, the magistrate of the Mokra, and the lead heavy in this week's show. He's a returning Trek guest star, as we saw him back in TNG on both Data's Day and Birthright Part 2, where in both episodes he played a Romulan. And this is his last Star Trek credit, but it's interesting to note that it's not his only experience on Voyager. He was originally cast as the Kazon Jabin for the pilot episode and shot a few scenes. The role was recast with Gavin O'Hurley and those scenes were refilmed, but obviously no hard feelings as Alan's talents were readily used for this episode. Finally, in the role of Kalem, we have a very special guest star from stage and screen, the iconic Joel Grey. He grew up in a showbiz family and started appearing in variety acts before he was 10 years old. Uh, His first film role came 70 years ago in the 1952 military romantic comedy About Face. But Joel is probably best known for the role that won him both a Tony Award and an Oscar as the master of ceremonies in Bob Fosse's cabaret. He knew Nothing about Star Trek at the time of this episode, and the production had tried to hire him before. It was this script and the opportunity to work with his old friend Kate Mulgrew that got him on board for this, his only Trek appearance. At 90 years old, Joel is still going strong with a recurring role in the Hulu series The Old Man. John, would you
0: mind if I jumped in, if I may?
2: I always appreciate when you jump in, because we always have our own favorites and our own stories to add to trivia. So there is a connection between Kate Mulgrew and Joel Gray. In
0: 1985, Remo Williams, The Adventure Continues. She played a major Rainer Fleming to uh, complement uh, his role and probably the most memorable role as Chun, the master of Sinanju, who looks far older than his character of Calum in this episode. <laughs>
1: It's dangerous to go alone. Take Tuvok with you. Trust me on this one.
2: Prologue. On an alien world, Janeway, Tuvok, Bolano Torres, and Neelix are incognito looking over some precious substance in a marketplace. Janeway quietly tells Neelix that they need more before they are to get out of there, and he steps away. Time is up, though, when black-clothed soldiers attack the away team in the market, and after a brief firefight, Tuvok and Balana are taken into custody. Janeway, hit with the beam of an energy weapon, lies unconscious on the ground, and one of the locals, an old man, comes running from the crowd, begging that the soldiers not touch her. Act 1. On Voyager, that substance comes into play. Neelix is beamed up with the bottle of Telerium that came from the marketplace, and the good news is that it stabilizes Voyager's engines, bringing back warp power. But Neelix has bad news about the rest of the away team coming under attack. The Alsarian faction known as Mokra opened fire and took away the other three. With Voyager up and running again, Chakotay in command brings the ship out of hiding and into orbit. He is immediately contacted by one of the Mokra, named Agress, who isn't exactly forthcoming. He kindly offers up the rules for visitation of their planet, and plays dumb when it comes to any visitors who might be detained. Once he's gone, Chakotay reminds Neelix that they have to explore diplomatic options, even if they don't trust him. On the surface, Bolana and Tuvok are indeed in a holding cell of some kind, and it seems like they won't be able to escape anytime soon. Janeway's predicament is much different, though. She awakens in the humble home of the old man who shouted down the soldier earlier. He's doting over her, bringing her something to drink, and offering some food after she rests. He's tender toward her and says that there's nothing to worry about now that his daughter is home. Act 2. Captain Janeway insists that she's not Kalem's daughter, Ralkana, but he seems nonplussed by the information. Soon he goes back to offering soup and stern warnings about crossing the Mokra. She'll need her strength, after all, when they attempt again to break his wife, her mother, free from prison where her friends are also being held. Meanwhile, on Voyager, Chakotay takes an in-person meeting with Agris, who expresses the Mokra concern over the arrival of a ship with such a reputation as Voyager's. Chakotay assures him that they are there in peace, but neither side gives an inch. Chakotay isn't willing to give information about what or who brought them there, thus revealing an informant, and Agris isn't willing to allow them to contact the imprisoned away team. Speaking of... Tuvok and Balana are intimidated by Ogres himself, demanding information about their contacts and the resistance. They repeat that they don't know any, but it's little use. Tuvok is taken away for interrogation. That leaves Janeway in Kalem's home, in a neighborhood crawling with Mokra soldiers. He is ready to get out as soon as they can, but first he wants to gather things to take to his wife when they find her, some clothes and a necklace that catches his eye, He insists that Ralkana wear it for when they are reunited, and Janeway reluctantly keeps it on. Then Calum turns his attention to the letters he's been writing every few days to his wife. They sit in a box, undelivered, years' worth. He's concerned about not finding the one he wrote a few days ago. He goes to write again, but the tremor in his hand prevents him, and he turns to his daughter for help. Janeway listens as Caleb gets lost in his memories again of his wife and daughter and his own frustration of what he can't remember to tell her. Just as Janeway gently tells him that he can't come with her to the prison, Mokra's soldiers start banging on the door and burst into the room seconds after Caleb and Janeway make their escape through a hidden wall panel. Act 3. The two make their way into the market area, where Janeway looks for Neelix's contact, Darrod, a member of the Resistance. On their trail, though, is Agris and his soldiers who stop Derrod before Janeway can get to him. It's Calum, though, who creates a distraction, acting the clown to break the tension and allow Derrod on his way while also allowing Janeway to hide. Back in the prison, Bolana looks for opportunity to escape while hearing Tuvok's tortured screams from another room. It's up to Voyager to stage a rescue, but those plans are slowly coming together as Chakotay charges Kim with a way of getting past the Mokra's sophisticated defenses without endangering anyone who beams in from the ship. Their shielding makes it difficult, and it's back to the drawing board for Harry. With the soldiers dispersed, Janeway makes contact with Derrod, who assures her that Neelix made it back to Voyager. He's reluctant to help, especially seeing Calum the coward there with her. But he does reveal that there is a guarded access tunnel that could get them closer. He'll set up a trade, Janeway's necklace for some weapons. They only need to wait a few hours for his contact, a man in a blue vest, who will make the trade with them. After that, they're on their own for what amounts to a suicide mission. Act 4. Janeway and Kalem wait for their contact to make the trade for weapons. While they do, Kalem talks a little more about what got them there and why Derrod would accuse him of being a coward. It was his wife who was the fighter. He just wanted to protect his little girl, and he was too afraid to meet his wife at an appointed time after she had raided a Mokra supply center. He begs his daughter, Rolkana, Janeway here for forgiveness and she gives him an understanding hug at that time their contact the man in the blue vest emerges from the crowd and Janeway cautiously approaches him before she can make a trade though she notices something suspicious he's wearing military boots which means it was a Mokra trap without weapons they have no way of getting past the prison guards and they'll need a new strategy in the prison Tuvok has been returned to his cell with Balana after being tortured. She's concerned about him, but clearly can't understand how he didn't fight back while enduring so much pain. He says he is fighting back by not revealing any information. Soon, Balana spots Darad being brought into a nearby cell. Elsewhere in the prison, a guard is standing watch and in walks Janeway as one of the girls a woman of negotiable affection who quietly suggests that they go to some place more private. Once around the corner, Calum is waiting to knock him out while Janeway grabs his weapon and stuns the other guard. Once she can disable the local force field, she reactivates it with Calum on the other side, her chance to find her crew and protect the old man, but with a promise that she will look for his wife. On Voyager, Harry Kim has made a little progress— Although they're staring down a planet-wide sensor net, they may be able to fake multiple signals to confuse the Mokra where exactly they'll be beaming in a rescue party. It's a good plan, but it's also a little late when the Mokra start firing ion cannons at Voyager. They've got two minutes to pull out, or else. Act 5. Now deep inside the prison, Janeway disables the shields around the prison and destroys the control panel. When the alarms blare, it's opportune time for Balana and Tuvok to escape, the latter by using a Vulcan nerve pinch on one of the guards. The distraction is enough of an opportunity for Janeway to find Derrod, who leads her to Tuvok and Balana. Along the way, they find Caleb again, who is still looking for his wife. Together, they all get stopped by Agress and his goons, who now have the perfect chance to settle the score. Meanwhile, on Voyager, they're taking hit after hit from those Mokra Ion weapons and need to escape. Harry can buy them a little extra time by maneuvering to an area where there's a heavy storm coverage, but that may only be a matter of minutes. Back in the prison, Argus has all his prisoners right where he wants them, and he monologues a bit about how long Calum has been on this same foolish mission, even though his wife has been dead for 12 years and his daughter was shot when she made it as far as the tunnels some years later. In his state, Calum can only mutter that these are lies, and when Auguris moves toward Janeway for interrogation, the old man loses his composure. He fights back, taking on Auguris and fatally stabbing him, but in the melee, Calum is shot by one of the remaining guards. It's Janeway, who gently leans over a dying Calum, now acting as his daughter, saying that Argris had told only lies, that her mother is fine and that she was happy to get his letters and more important, that they both forgive him. As Calum passes, Darred says they will never forget his bravery. Now safely back on Voyager, Janeway is distracted while hearing Harry's status report. When he leaves her alone, she reaches for the necklace Calum gave her, holding it close to her face. The end. That
0: was not an easy recap to break down, John, because this is a very uh, plot-heavy, very impactful episode, and I think we just need to jump straight into it. What do you say?
2: Uh- I think we do. Um, Yeah, that's sort of the the mission log thing here is when when it's a heavy character driven, emotionally driven and plot driven episode. Just uh, just get through the plot. Now we now we get to talk about the character stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So and speaking of character stuff right from the beginning, I got to say, this is how I want to see Neelix used throughout Voyager. He's I mean, think about what's happening just from the beginning, from the, the teaser. He's valuable to the mission. He takes things seriously that need to be taken so. And he, he can play things with a light hand. He's not a walking joke, though. Like, more of this Neelix. This is what I want. I absolutely agree. And staying true to Neelix, when the
0: contraband vial is being scanned, I like the added detail that they were around, like, a bread cart, so he picks up a loaf of bread, starts sniffing it, because he's also a foodie, but it's also part of his
2: cover. Yes, yes.
0: And yes. do you do you think that we took him a little bit more seriously because his wardrobe being in kind of like in that camouflage just toned him down a little bit? So we're paying more attention to him as opposed to his wardrobe? I, that is a huge thing. Yes, I think you're absolutely
2: right. Yeah. Oh, and by the way,
0: what money are they going to use to buy said Contraband. So, just curious. You know, money being a thing of the Delta you gotta,
2: yeah, and all that. <laughs> yeah. You, you gotta wonder. Like, uh, hopefully, they're not trading Federation tech. They wouldn't do that. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, maybe their money system is something that's just so easy to replicate on board Voyager. They don't even care. Like, oh, you want uh, five tons of candle wax? Yeah, we sure we got that. <laughs> no problem here.
0: Well that's interesting. Five tons of can never mind. I, I'm not even mm-hmm. gonna go yeah. there.
2: That's all they need. That's <laughs> all they need. Yeah. Um, I do like some some great words of Tuvok wisdom. We have insufficient evidence to dismiss either conclusion talking about whether Janeway was captured or or the, the rest of the team captured or made it back to Voyager and I, I love that how Bellana calls it you know the Vulcan way of saying hope for the best I, I I thought it was great it's purely logical it absolutely works very snappy writing in this episode I do like the line mm-hmm.
0: when Chakotay said if there's any chance for a diplomatic solution I'll pursue it I like that I like yes. how that's starting to springboard off of his last few episodes we're starting to see a, a little bit more rounded Chakotay as a character
2: yep Yep, uh, and a great way to sort of remind us all that this is what Starfleet does <laughs> with the best mm-hmm. of intention. Speaking of people maybe without the best of intention, oh, August, delivering that line, I'm here to help. I love that tense meeting on Voyager where just neither side is giving any leeway to the other, but they're trying, like, they're saying the diplomatic words. Oh, it's all about subtext in that scene, and it was played so well. I really like the Mukwege uniforms from
0: that intimidation standpoint, but maybe they're mm-hmm. a little too intimidating for a diplomatic meeting on board a quote unquote enemy ship. Yeah. It kind of sets the tone, maybe. It's a little heavy handed to set the tone like, oh, obviously these guys are bad guys because look at the way they dress.
2: Yeah, it, it is a bit much, particularly when Argus is sitting there saying, like, well, you, your ship is, uh, you know, you, you're antagonistic and you come around and terrorizing other places. Meanwhile, he's got these armed, you know, black shrouded mm-hmm. uh, uh, guards, you know. Look, something that will probably come up a lot today, and I'm just going to get it stated here early on, and it'll be a frequent refrain, is pointing out Joel Gray's delivery, his body language, just. Every moment that he's on screen is pretty remarkable. I mean, Mm -hmm. you you can watch him and you can feel this character as he gets lost in his thoughts or or racked with the concerns of the past. It it is painful and beautiful to watch every single moment.
0: I have a few specific uh, examples uh, that I have in my notes, Mm -hmm. but I'm actually going to kind of forego those because I want to get to one specific scene. And it is rare mm-hmm. when episodes of Star Trek actually elicit tears from me because the scene is so powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's when he it's when Calem or Joel Gray in the scene where he's talking about mm-hmm. how he is going to rewrite a letter but his hand was shaking. So he wanted uh. his daughter to write for him. And when you watch Joel Gray, you know, the yeah. nuances of his performance are obviously going to be talked about ad nauseum in this, you know, in our in our notes. But that scene has Kate in the background out of focus and it reminded me a lot of yeah. the I, when, I, when we asked uh, Nana when she was standing there when Avery was doing his, his, you know, his scene at the end of mm. uh, Far Beyond the Stars mm. like what do you do when you watch an yeah. actor of that caliber uh, elicit such a performance from where? Where does that come from? And how do you react to that as yeah. an actor who has quality of their own what's in your thoughts at the time. So I was curious to see if we were ever going to get back into focus on her watching him act that scene. Mm. So that's just always mm. something in the back of my mind.
2: Yeah. I mean, look in an, in an episode where the reacting of acting is so important. So we, we do get some great moments like that, like, uh, Oh my God. I mean that, that scene in the market where he creates the diversion there is there is such strength to it but also an incredible discomfort to that scene but look at kate's reaction her reaction at the end of it where she's trying obviously thankful that he did this but she's also trying to restore some amount of dignity to him it it's incredible her she does it all without saying anything and she's pitch perfect in that. All right. Something fun. Uh, does nobody on this planet think twice about the very clearly different species just walking around there who mm-hmm. they've never seen before? You know, and, and by the way, on this planet, what tech do they actually have? So they, they don't have transporters. Remember, Chakotay says they're unfamiliar with transporters. But they did just hang out on Voyager for a little while. They have a planetary defense grid. They have weapons that can disable a starship that 's in orbit i mean <laughs> they' it's kind of interesting how they decided what the technological limits were going to be for uh for everybody there and one thing look i I know that it's hard to do a forehead of the week or a nose bridge of the week. <laughs> But I don't love this one. And, and look, and I also know, I, I also know that there is an attempt to make, as they often do in Star Trek, you want to make these aliens look very human, because you're driving home the the humanity of those characters, and you're driving home the connection that they would have. Janeway can't look too different from Kaelam. Because then that breaks the illusion that he would believe that she is right. his daughter, right. but it is distracting.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I-, I think they are trying to go for like this grand marketplace type of, uh, like almost kind of like a, a Casablanca esque, you know, kind of like yep. milieu of all these different races. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there is limitations to it. I am going to go one step further and say that. They probably could have had maybe more shrouded characters in a marketplace, seeing that this is kind of like a seedy type of environment where people would Mm -hmm. want to keep their identities Mm -hmm. covered. There was a scene where uh, as soon as uh, they broke down the doors of Caleb's place and then he and Janeway escaped, they were walking through the marketplace pretty much completely uncovered. You'd think they would want to find something to hide their identities, but... Again, yeah. you know, Just for the sake of story, that's what happened. Uh, yeah, there's a scene where Agris was again trying to negotiate with uh, the bridge crew, and then Neelix is there, being kind of like the advisor du jour. I mean, he was amazing in this episode. He was just doing a completely yeah. different tone on Neelix. Uh, Ethan was, and yeah, I, I I like Neelix, you know, for the comedy that he brings, but I also like seeing more of this balance out that almost overt, obligatory comedy that he, you know, on the surface because of what he looks like, the way he dresses.
2: I I think Neelix was done a lot of justice by this episode, and I think it's Lisa Klink. I mean, her writing here, you already mentioned that the dialogue is really snappy where it needs to be, but Mm -hmm. it's also just like toning down the things that need to be toned down in order to get to the heart of the moment, like play the scene instead of just, you know, building up a character because you think they'll be funny. You know, this great scene, though,
0: Sometimes, you know, we were a little hard on episodes where they say, you know, tell us, don't show us, or show us, don't tell us. In this case, mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. heard the scream of Tuvok's uh, interrogation mm. and his torture, and it was really well done. It's like, yeah. no matter what Bellana sure. or the audience, no matter what we think may be the case, we don't know what it is until we actually see it. So it lets yeah. us uh, kind of play in that imaginary realm a little bit.
2: Yeah. That, that was an intense, very well done scene. And then the follow-up to that with them having a conversation and Tuvok saying Vulcans are capable of suppressing certain levels of physical pain. Beyond that, we must simply endure the experience. It was this heartbreaking thing because you know that even somebody as tough as Tuvok has his limits and he's mm-hmm. just got to sit there and take it. Her reaction to that, again, great moment, great scene, just so well done. Yeah, I think, again, going back to
0: Lisa Clink and crediting her for, again, very sharp dialogue. Also, mm-hmm. let's credit Tim for just incredibly sharp performance and understanding, yeah. you know, the subtleties of that, of what he's doing. He's also adding to kind of like the Vulcan lore, like the Vulcan mysticism and that veil being taken down about mm-hmm. what can or can't Vulcans do? What can or can't they endure? So I yeah. thought that was important, you know, just for the vernacular of Star Trek one thing that is not as important to the vernacular of <laughs> Star Trek. So I have... I love weapons. I love bladed weapons, yep. swords, knives, etc. What I don't like is every single time they pull out what they call the Gil Hibben shadow dagger. It's that double-bladed dagger <laughs> that ends up in every yeah. single alien's hands in science fiction in the 1990s ever. Yeah. It just it just says, oh, I love Gil Hibben's designs. That one... It's just overused. I'm sorry. It's okay. Now,
2: now, wait a minute, though. Do you own one?
0: I have at one point in time owned <laughs> one. Yes, I have.
2: Okay. Probably okay. somewhere
0: in the 1990s, probably from a flea market when I was like, hey, I really should have one of those because it's on a TV show that I like or several. Yeah.
2: So, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm there's a scene in the bridge that is just so like maybe it's a little too efficient where chakotay asks him how long will it take you to modify the deflector?" i can do it right now i <laughs> that's mm-hmm. it's so convenient it, you know look uh, on the one hand you would get uh you know how long will it take you to do that it'll take 47 hours on the other hand it's like oh look i just wave my hand and it's done <laughs> so which one is more
0: realistic i don't know supposedly this is how you get ahead as an ensign, but obviously that didn't help. So mm. I'm just saying, there you, you know, go. very eager. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I did like the L cars of the, the the planetary security system. Really, really well done. You know, the, the animation yes. of all the different beams and where they're going to like hide behind the cloud. Mm-hmm. And that's just, I love it when they improve upon it, you know, from episode to episode, to episode, very nicely done.
2: Yeah. Hey, can you help me here? Because I feel like I missed something. Um, mm-hmm. When when they have that moment, the thing get through the defense grid, when the, uh, the shields are dropped around the prison, uh, Tom Paris makes his case to, to uh, Chakotay to beam down while that shield is disabled. And uh, Chakotay is like, okay, you got 30 seconds or whatever it is. Did he make it? because we don't see him again <laughs> we don't we we just we hear that bit of dialogue we just don't see tom paris again oh we do he he actually makes it for we a do. brief second
0: at the very very end but only just Does for like just, a moment
2: okay okay so I, yeah. I kept all right i kept watching i was like what are is he gonna get a line is he gonna are they gonna mention it like hey better late than never nothing
0: well it's blinking. You miss him, really is. Okay. I mean, uh, you know, just you know, we watch these over again and over again. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It happened. And I at did the time. watch it
2: over and over again. Yeah,
0: right. And it happens at the time where a lot of the melee ensued, and then Caleb gets shot, and then we're trying to resolve a bunch of characters. He kind of shows up. He's very hard to to see in the course of all of that dark lit, you know, set. More importantly, though, John, I, I suffer.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but
0: more, more importantly, for the rest of the audience out there, why do you send a pilot on a snatch-and-grab <laughs> mission? Why don't you send Baxter, right, to go
2: after Tuvok? Oh, yes. You know? That's what you do. Because either, well, first of all, you know where to find him. He's going to be in mm. the gym working out so hard. And then right. when you get him, it's like, who is tough enough to go do a, a jailbreak with a bunch of alien thugs get them out of the way baxter baxter yeah right uh-huh. baxter yeah.
0: security he's legit security he's hardcore mm-hmm.
2: he's like the john mcclain
0: of voyager you know he dies hard. yeah right so yeah he that's, does that's who you want he on the mission yeah.
2: the other person i want on my mission is uh harry kim because he can tell us to set a course bearing two one nine mark four seven there it there is it folks is.
0: I like the Spock-like takedown of the guard by Tuvok. Good old neck pinch. It's a classic. And as the security guard's falling, he lifts his gun out of his holster at the same time. Very efficient. Very efficient takedown.
2: Yep. And man, I, just bringing it all home, that uh, speaking of watching things over and over again, uh, every time I watched it, that death scene with Caleb, very powerful each and every time. Didn't lose any of its uh, sheen for me. And uh, also for
0: me, it's Janeway looking at the necklace at the end, just kind of bringing that entire story full circle. But probably my strangest observation for this episode, as good as this episode Mm -hmm. is, there's not a single there's not a single moment with Bob Picardo in this as the EMH at
2: all. And no scene with Jennifer Leon as his Nothing. Wow, we're missing a bit of the Voyager family here. From
1: my analysis of vocal stress patterns, there is a high probability that Tuvok was forced to walk across a pile of Lego.
2: We'll be right back with Resistance, but first a word from this week's sponsor. So, John...
0: Did you notice that big tech companies today are masquerading as privacy companies? Oh, I'm not convinced. Just fix your privacy settings, turn off app tracking, and you're all good, right? Oh, sure. Are we supposed to believe that big bad
2: tech wolf has now turned into our sweet grandma? No, oh, I'm. I, you know, I maybe I'm not buying it because big tech literally. Feeds on your information. It's like a like a space vampire, like an information vampire feeding on your information. Sure, now maybe they'll release a feature now and then that does some good, but collecting and selling off your data is in big tech's nature. This is what they do. They can't stop themselves from looking at what you do online. The better to see you with my dear if i were to you know use your metaphor there norman to protect myself against big text prying eyes i use we both use expressvpn now when you use the expressvpn app on your computer or your phone you're hiding your unique ip address websites can't use that address to find out your real location or track what you do online on top of that ExpressVPN encrypts and reroutes a hundred percent of your online activity, so your internet provider, Wi-Fi admin, and hackers can't see it. The best part is, though, how easy it is to use. It literally takes one click to protect all your devices. One ExpressVPN subscription covers up to five devices at the same time, so you can protect your entire family, too. And that's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, TechRadar, and countless others. It's what we do. Got it on our phones, our tablets, our computers, TVs, everything else. So
0: today's the day. Get the VPN that we trust to protect our online privacy when big bad tech is at the door. Visit expressvpn.com missionlog mission log and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log. Express dot com slash mission log to learn more. Okay, John. So here we are at the discussion point of our show, mm. which is where we take a look, a deep look at an episode. And sometimes the episodes are, they're, they're serious. Mm. They're sometimes they're comedic. But this one, though, I think is something a little different, something a little more unique, something special. Hmm. Judging from our observations, I think one of the things that you and I have both uh, kind of gravitated towards uh, in this episode is how Janeway and how Kalem have this manufactured relationship based on Janeway perhaps taking advantage of a relationship that Kalem has manufactured because he is such a broken character. And wow. I want to start off this discussion with you and with the audience. Mm. There is a scene that bothered me and I wanted to kind of get this out in the open and maybe we can have a little bit more of a, you know, a, a 360 degree look at maybe okay. I'm looking at it the wrong way. Maybe it just affected me the wrong way or the right way. Mm. <laughs> there is a scene where Janeway is planning to infiltrate the prison um, to break out Tuvok and Bolana, and she needs weapons and information and... In the course of that dialogue, Darod, the the fixer for those weapons, wants mm-hmm. to make an exchange. And Janeway says, I don't have anything to trade. And then he looks at the necklace, and he says, that's worth some weapons. And Janeway says, I can't. And then Kalem says, mm-hmm. yes, you can, if it'll help to bring her, Kalem's wife, back to us. Mm-hmm. That's not Janeway's necklace to trade. However, she does have a responsibility to her ship and her crew. Saving them is non-negotiable. Yeah. But it still bothers me that she's turned Calum into an asset and trading on his delusion. Hmm. What's worse about it to me is that he's continuing this because he wants so desperately to believe that she is his estranged daughter. So am I seeing this differently than other people? Or is this something that is, its is it an extremism that Janeway has to endure because of, the situation that she's in.
2: well somebody ask you this then because I, I i get where you're coming from with your discomfort with that scene the thing that sort of made it okay for me is that there are many steps along the way both before and after that scene where janeway has this genuine tenderness sort of like look at the number of times that she just gives him a hug like i'm i'm here with you i'm present with you i understand that you are in pain even if i can't really do anything about that even if i'm not the person that you believe me to be and in that scene with the trade i feel like her gut reaction was this isn't mine to trade i can't do that because it's meaningful to him right but as soon as she gets permission mm-hmm. from him then it's okay and i guess at maybe at that point do you see it as like a cool professional detachment from the emotions that are at play there because let's say things had played out perfectly well she you know she trades in the necklace there are weapons to be traded for it's not a trap they get their friends out of there Kalem lives to see another day. Is he going to miss that? Is he will something else become the object of his delusion? Will somebody else become the object of his delusion? I feel like there are too many unknowns for Janeway to be too precious about it. Other than just whatever Calem's state is at the moment. And, and if his state at the moment says you can trade that away, then maybe she's got to go with it. Maybe, you know, in another way of this story playing out, because there are any number of ways this could play out, they get him away to a safe place. They get him some Mm -hmm. of the help that he needs. They, you know, dramatically, this sort of has to play out the way that it does. But I don't think it makes Janeway any less caring to also be pragmatic. You know? Mm -hmm.
0: Now, that's, that's fair to say I, I think maybe like during the course of the episode one of the things still that kind of bothers me a little bit is that she never really except for maybe like the first time when she woke up in his, in his hovel that she tried mm-hmm. to correct him I'm like I'm not who you think I am but as mm-hmm. soon as he kind of you know in, as soon as he continues this relationship with her whether it's delusional or whether you know he he is accepting the fact that I know this isn't my daughter, but she's the next best thing and it's comforting me mm-hmm. for a time. Because I think that there is a tighter up that's being walked there. I'm not completely convinced mm-hmm. that he is just living this delusional life. I mm-hmm. think that Janeway could have maybe impressed upon him more that I care about you. I care about what's happening what's happening to you, but I'm not your daughter. I'm not even, you know, yeah, I, I know that you want me to be her so badly and I almost kinda wish that I saw like a glimmer in his eyes because Joel Gray can do this just with an eye you mm-hmm. know, an eye twitch. He's like, mm-hmm. I know, I know, you just have to give me this. You have to give me this hope to go on. You know. Yeah. I just I don't know. I I'm 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 a little torn between well what is the honorable thing to do and what is the practical thing to do, the pragmatic thing, like you said, to do.
2: Yeah. Well, that's kind of the genius of the performance—is that. He to us to the audience. He he can seem to slip in and out of this delusional state. He can be very focused and uh, very much in control of a situation, but he can also be losing his mind to memory and fantasy. And that that's all that that's what makes his character so compelling. And that's what makes his performance so magnetic here. But when it comes to Janeway's decisions, I mean, I, I think. From early on, we get this idea that this for her is also a tightrope walk. You know, it, It's about being respectful of him and meeting him where he is, but also seeing the mission through. And you see that in her care when she says constantly, like, you have to stay here. I have to go do this. I will do whatever I can. I will help you get your wife back. I will do all these things, but I have to do this alone." And she's doing that to protect him because, well, things play out exactly as they do play out, which is ending in his death and the the sad reveal about what happens. But I'm I'm curious, like there are all these moments along the way where she gets clued in about his state. And it was interesting Mm -hmm. to me because you, you just talked about it, that, you know, there's this one moment that she pushes back. At the beginning, I'm not your daughter. I'm Catherine Janeway. I'm the captain of a starship. This is who I am. And she could have chosen to keep steering him toward reality, like literally at every turn that he says something, she could have just denied it and said, "Nope, that's not who I am. That's not what the situation is. I will help you, but then I'm out of here." You know. But almost as soon as she clues into what's happening with him, she drops that. She stops the pushback and and just has this gentle demeanor to him. She carries on the mission, but she's also protective of Calum, and she never belittles his needs, which is, right. I, I think, part of the, the emotional beauty of this whole thing. And, I, you know, to me, the, this incredibly touching part of this story is at the very end, maintaining that fantasy for him when she's dying. And the thing that it made me think, because you can extrapolate this to any number of situations, is this one of those rare cases where it's better to maintain the delusion for someone other than to push back with reality? You know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, like,
0: at that point, you know... uh in the story, or at least at that point in in, in Calum's, you know, his uh, understanding of the reality that is in front of him, what good would it have done uh, uh, to him, you know, if Janeway said, "I'm sorry, but none of this was real. Your wife is still dead. Your daughter is still dead. Mm-hmm. You know, none of none of that would have m- made any difference." to Caleb, aside from the fact that he would have left the life, um, his life, uh, in a completely like destroyed emotional state. Yeah. Why would she do that to him? She wouldn't do that to him. I know that for whatever she did during the course of this episode, the way that she eased him into the afterlife, you know, and giving him that hope, that was the right thing to do. That was the noble thing to do. Even if it wasn't
2: truthful. And and, and that's what's interesting. It's a turning point for Janeway, because up until that point, she had been just uh, I use that word before navigating. She'd been gently navigating his delusion, just uh, not push back too hard, uh, still protect him, still Get what she's after, but at the end, when he's laying there dying, she actually creates the fantasy for him. She actively creates mm-hmm. that by saying, by assuming the role that she is his daughter, and that his wife, her mother, appreciated the letters. You know, all of the. She is constructing this for him. In order to ease him into his own death. And, you Mm -hmm. you know, obviously completely wrong, but the very cynical way of looking at it is to say, well, look, when he's dead, he's dead, he's gone. And Janeway is still Janeway. And she carries on with the life that she has had up until this point. Um, But she does this noble thing. Which is to perpetuate this fantasy to to further create the fantasy for him, just to sort of ease his emotional state as he says goodbye mm-hmm. to existence. And usually I'm the person who uh, I don't consider myself cynical, but I consider myself a realist in some respect and to say like look if you're, if we're going to argue here about what's more valuable, the harsh reality or the um you know the pleasant fantasy I would say is better to have the reality than the pleasant fantasy but here it's it's hard to argue with the idea that the pleasant fantasy is the more noble the more caring the more humanistic side to take
0: right humanistic and that's the right word I think that if Tuvok was going to you know, mm. if he was going to try and, you know, comfort Calum, you know, in his final moments, it would have been a much different tone. I don't think that Tuvok would have been brutally Vulcan, but it would have been a different tone. And I think that it's nice to, I think it was a good moment for Janeway, a good moment for Kate, where she, of all of the things that she's experienced so far in the Delta Quadrant, she hasn't lost her humanity. Yeah. You know, she hasn't yeah. lost the, the quality of mercy. Yeah. And I think that that was that moment where, you know what? Honesty is one thing, mercy is a completely different other thing. And this is the time for mercy. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Let's talk about uh, uh, another really standout moment of this episode, and that is Caleb creating his distraction in the marketplace. He's using the only weapon that he's got, <laughs> and and that is his ability to put on a show here and allowing himself to be humiliated in order to save someone else. And I don't really have too much else to add to that, other than to say that it is a strong, very personal moment. And you have to wonder again uh, that tightrope between the reality and the fantasy, the delusion here is that Calum. Helping this stranger to survive, you know, to get weapons to do what she needs to do or is it still believing that he's protecting his daughter and at that case does it really matter. It's just self-preservation mode, but you can almost imagine that this is something that he would have done before because it's a trick that worked hoping that it would protect his wife or protect his daughter or whomever. Um, it, It was just an outstanding scene that on paper kind of would seem like nothing and in any less skilled hands would not play with the emotional impact that it does. And I pointed out before that I feel like it's really Kate's reaction to that that puts the emotional button on that scene. I mean, it would have been really interesting to have seen
0: Kalen's daughter. Is it Ralkana? Yep. (laughs) In an image of some kind, see how close mm. that Janeway resembled her mm-hmm. so that we have a better understanding of, yes, this is Calum's delusion because he can't shake the fact that this woman is Janeway is so similar mm. uh, in the way that she looks, and the way that she acts and kind of like, you know, in, in, in her personality, kind of like her strength and her steadfastness uh, because – now you will really understand why he's going at such lengths or he's going to such lengths to put himself in harm's way and humiliate himself because of her, mm-hmm. because he wants to keep her safe. Because either one, he couldn't do it before and understands the reality of she's gone. And this and this time around, the second time around, the second chance that he's gotten uh, with Janeway, he won't let that happen again. Yeah. Right. So there is an interesting look at. I've been given the opportunity. This is Calum saying this or maybe even thinking this. Mm -hmm. I've been given the opportunity to do things right this time, you know, to make things better because she's dropped in out of nowhere and said, you know what? She's the second chance that I never got. Yeah. What is he willing to sacrifice for that? He's willing to sacrifice his dignity. Mm -hmm. You know, he's willing Mm -hmm. to sacrifice his, his, his personal honor, his nobility because of this. Yeah. Is this the level of delusion that he's working on? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Let's talk about another really standout and important scene here. And that is Janeway volunteering herself as a distraction in the uh, the prison. And it was a controversial scene mm-hmm. at the time. Um, the writer's room discussed this quite a bit. And Lisa Klink just firmly came down on the side of saying, no, 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 if the stakes are that high, there is no question that you would use every tool in your arsenal to to remedy the situation. Now here's the problem that scene was hyped up in promos giving the wrong impression about what the episode was about and that, that was a yeah. big problem um, but I have to say after watching this and watching it a few times I think it was handled with absolutely the seriousness that the situation deserved. A moment like that is such a cliche. And I don't know how many times we've seen something play out like that in World War II movies or spy shows or or whatever that maybe you're doing it with a a wink and a nod. It could have been handled in a hundred terrible ways. I think they got this just right. Uh, what about you? Well, I mean, it also goes to, you know, uh,
0: to Kate's credit. Mm-hmm. You know, she can play sultry, but mm-hmm. not uh, um, not in that uh, trashy or trampy kind of way. Mm-hmm. You know, she's and, doing and not, it. Not there was a, a quiet reserve. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there was a quiet yeah. reserve about her when she's walking, knowing that she has. I mean, let, let's take a look at. This part of the story versus what she has done to get to this point, which is lead an old man through a delusion so that she can find an opportunity to rescue her crew. She's actually done that. I mean, she's made that choice Mm -hmm. to use him as an asset. So that she get Mm. to this point. Do you think she's not going to actually go that extra mile and risk everything to get her crew back? I'm surprised at that. This is a controversial scene. It makes complete sense Mm. from the character arc of what she's chosen to do to this point. Like she's not going to, what, uh, swallow her pride a little bit and do something that may be unsavory. But of course she would because that's how important her crew is
2: to her to get back. I think the worry is that a scene like that could play tonally off from the rest of the episode that has such a a gentleness about it, but also a high drama. Um, And then clearly the promos on UPN at the time got it all wrong, (laughs) completely messed it up. But in context, I think it plays really nicely and and it plays again with this heightened drama of the whole thing. And you really believe how high the stakes are for Janeway throughout all of this. A couple of other topics I just want to hit on very quickly here. Uh, Tuvok and B'Elanna, I, you know, some wonderful moments there. And I, I don't know if we're supposed to ask ourselves, is Tuvok doing too little or is Balana expecting too much? You know, how many times have we seen Starfleet officers imprisoned and their first duty is to escape? <laughs> that 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 is their mission mm. they need to get out of there and you know maybe Tuvok knows that Bolana can't handle the torture the way that he did but i i really like his response to her saying we are fighting back by refusing to give them any information that is true but again i also wonder is he doing too little physically to get out of there like it, does bolana have a point huh. I mean, the very first time that they tried to escape, they were
0: outmanned almost two to one yep. you know, in the cell. Yep. And Belana was handled very effectively like by the security officer. I think Tuvok, being a security officer himself and trained in the art of understanding kind of like situational awareness, he knows that, nope, in this prison cell, they have all of the advantage. They know exactly how to control their parties and know exactly the redundancies of their security systems. Mm-hmm. And then later on, we are actually, you know, informed of how good their security planetarily, as yeah. opposed to just in a cell. Yeah. is you know how you know how good it really is, how impenetrable it really is. So I thought that that made an excellent point of look at how advanced our technology is in terms of the paranoia level of uh you know of outside you know invaders or outside influences, and when they're there, that's why you know their their hunt for the resistance would you know was so extreme because they're they're a paranoid military paramilitary society and yeah i think that tuvok's like you know what i've sized you up and there's really nothing we can do here aside from endure it right now
1: let's find out if norman and john could resist this story any longer
0: Well, as much as we tried to resist, John, to get to the end of this episode, we have made it to the end of resistance, and this is the time where we traditionally look at the episode, take a look at it to see if it withstands the test of time, and then see if we have learned any morals or meanings and, and or messages, or all three. So, very powerful episode. We will get to our notes um, right now, and we'll start with you, Mr. Champion. Uh, how did you feel about resistance?
2: I'm going to do something that I really haven't done too many times on Mission Log, maybe a couple of times before, and that is I will read my initial notes that I took uh, after my first viewing, and then I'll tell you what I really think, okay? Because sometimes I go back, like, I'll just write down my initial notes, and, and I think for some reason that'll stick, and then I'll watch it a couple more times. I'm like, yeah, that's that's still how I feel about it. But then other times, like this time, My my point of view may change a little bit. So I originally said that this is a good episode that is made that way on the strength of its two stars. It's an episode full of very good moments uh, where these two in particular, and I mean, Kate Mulgrew and Joel Gray, where they really shine. And do not forget that Tim Ross and Roxanne Dawson are also quite good here, but it stops short of being a great episode for a number of reasons. And the most egregious of which is that there are just so many individual moments that it's hard to feel a real connection to the story itself. So let's look at this in the context of Voyager. We're in this week's story with very little setup, very little understanding of context, and sometimes that is perfectly okay. You can, in TV, get across a lot of information in a short time, but we've got multiple storylines happening here, and a lot more of the fabric of this story needs to unfold for me to feel really connected to it. So I appreciate the emotional moments of it. Again, the performances are excellent all around, but it stopped short of being great. Okay, that's what I originally wrote. That's what I originally thought when I. Was, and then I watched it two more times, and then I anticipated and got further connected to the emotional moments of this episode. And I'm just going to say, this is really great. <laughs> this is. It, oh yeah, great! Yeah, it it really. I I still think that this episode suffers a little bit from, the disjointed episodic. Feeling of Voyager because Voyager has the premise of a serialized show, but it is executed as an episodic show. Planet of the Week, Alien of the Mm -hmm. Week, you know, and that's a tough thing to do because we wouldn't be talking about Star Trek as long as we have. Star Trek wouldn't be made for as long as it has been made if all it was was just morality plays in the guise of science fiction. We have to have an emotional connection to the characters as well. That's what keeps us coming back for more and more and more. And somehow this episode because of the strength of the performances because of those very tangible emotional connections between Janeway and Caleb, uh, uh, Kate and Joel Gray just felt that much more real every single time around i found myself getting drawn further and further into joel gray's performance here and really genuinely feeling for him you you, you teared up at uh what I, I forget what scene it was that you said that uh he, he wanted to rewrite the letter oh, to his wife, that course. last
0: letter, but his hand was shaking too much.
2: Of course, of course. Yeah, it, it, just a beautiful scene. I found myself emotionally more affected by that death scene every single time that I watched it. Genuinely so. A- and I feel like, in retrospect now, if I were to fault this episode with anything, it's either that, okay, you could get rid of some of the imprisonment story with... Tuvok and Bolana, or some of what's going on with the ship or what it, you could really minimize that so you just spend more time with Caleb and Janeway or stretch this out into a two-parter I, you know I, maybe that's a bit too long for this but I feel like since we are just thrown into the middle of it and we are just thrown into what's happening with this culture, we really we don't have a connection to the Mokra. We don't have a connection to the rest of the planet or what their situation is. And sometimes that can be effective. Sometimes it's not for me. It rubbed me the wrong way the first time around. But then I just gave myself over to the the, the heart of this story and i think that's what makes it so strong in the end so so there you go it's maybe it only just stopped short of being at a 10 out of 10 for me only because Mm -hmm. of that structural thing but um but yeah it, it it won me over the more i watched it how about you I mean, sometimes, you know, episodes,
0: you know, when you just jump, like, kind of like right in the middle of maybe uh, a, a storyline that, uh, yeah, sure, there were some small details like, you know, who are the Mokra? Why are they invested in, you know, them as uh, rebellion or, or resistance? And, um, yeah, I can get around that. You know, I can I can either headcanon that or just say that, you know, somewhere along the line between the last episode and this episode, they, they wrinkled somebody the wrong way. And... I'm just going to say this because it's just the way I feel about this episode. For me, I think this is the best episode of Voyager I've seen since Caretaker. Ooh, um, wow. I've said this at times. Um, yeah, and I've said this at times where when, when an episode emotionally affects me uh, in, in a very unique and powerful way, that usually ends up like, rising very quickly in what I love. You know, in in case uh, in this case, you know, uh, Joel Grace performances. There were just so many times where I was either in tears or on the verge of. I think the narrative is very strong. I think it's tight. I think the pacing is great. I think the production value in this episode, uh, compared to other episodes that tried to create like marketplaces like this or tried to create that kind of bleak, lived-in landscape, you know, where everything's just used-looking and beaten down and weather-beaten, you know, like uh, the townscape, Calum's hovel the prison cells, even the wardrobe. I think the wardrobe was fabulous in this episode because it gave you a real sense of that desperate grittiness, you know, of this planet. Mm-hmm. And I think that Rick, uh, Rick Colby, he's, this is like one of those kind of episodes where you just really pay attention to the direction, you know? So mm-hmm. Lisa Klinks and his, you know, collaboration, uh, the performances that you were getting from like the cast, the main cast, all of that really that all added to um, what would be a great episode. Then you add Joel Gray, <laughs> yeah, his yeah. right. You know, his uh, presence on the show is the embodiment of the rising tide that lifts all boats. Mm. When you bring a Joel Gray onto you know your production, everyone's game is taken up to that next level because, mm-hmm. and especially when you have he and Kate working together again two master class actors yeah. who have given us master class performances in an episode several times that's when you feel an episode become when it evolves from very good then you watch it again to incredibly good mm-hmm. then you watch it again and when you really pay attention to the emotional beats the nuances you know the particulars it becomes great you know, becomes something extraordinary. And because he's so good, another reason why I love this episode is because there are very few, if any, guest actors who have come on board Voyager who have been able to actually steal the scene away from Kate when it's just Kate and somebody else. Yeah. And Joel Grey has the power to do that and compliment her at the same time. Mm. So when you have that kind of unique, special force, that dynamic on screen, it's very special to watch. That's why you have to watch this episode because of performances like theirs. Yeah. But it's not just about the performances alone. <laughs> it's not just about what we think about the plot. And yeah. you know we have to do what we always do at the end, did we find a moral or meaning or message somewhere in the middle of this episode or all of them or none of them? So what did you think, John? I,
2: you know, I think just so very simply, and I just got it in a few words. The, this story, and the, the beauty of it, what won me over about this story is that it, it is about compassion above all. In this profound way, Janeway shows it to Calum. Balana and Tuvok show it to each other. They come to an understanding in this really great way. He is respectful of her concerns. She is respectful of what he has been through and is compassionate about what he has been through. Augris, the bad guy, the heavy here, clearly lacks it. Um, But it's even nice to see, like, uh, uh, Derrod... Gain some compassion about Calum. It's people seeing each other as people, not just as, you know, players on a chessboard. So I think that's really nice about it. But I also had this other thought that isn't necessarily a moral meaning or message, but it made me think about the experience of living someone else's life and I asked myself if the necklace is sort of like Janeway's version of the Ressican flute what Picard Mm -hmm. got in uh, The Inner Light she for a brief Mm -hmm. moment she got to live in someone else's shoes and it wasn't just that it was about becoming emotionally connected to a family that wasn't her own and now she has this memento of an alien on another world who will be long gone And that life is just a flicker to everyone else except for her. But for that moment, she got to connect emotionally, personally, humanely, compassionately to this other being. And I think that really shows something about Star Trek at its best when, again, as I said before, it isn't always just about the morality play with the sci fi dressing. It is about the human component there, and it is about meeting somebody where they are emotionally and having that compassionate hand. So uh, I, I think that's really sort of the, the beautiful, uh, the heart of this story, even if we're not calling it necessarily a moral meaning message. That is the heart of what mm-hmm. we've seen here. How about you? i love how you've uh
0: you know have equated you know what janeway was looking at the very end and having her kind of like relive the experience of the planet by just looking at the necklace that you know so briefly mm-hmm. and and how that is i mean it is definitely like emotionally you know associated with picard with those few notes that he played on the flute at the mm-hmm. end of the inner light i mean it's it's heartbreaking and sobering and i think that that's where i am you know with this episode and um I I know that some listeners, uh, they they tend to enjoy more of our organic conversation at the end, John. But Mm -hmm. I had to write this down in a way where um, I personally wouldn't emotionally break uh, thinking about this episode Mm -hmm. and and what I believe this episode stands for. So being able to read it on a script will keep me a little bit more emotionally in tune with what I need to say. Uh, The the, the big question is, is resistance indeed futile? Mm. In this case, the resistance to the cold, hard, and bitter reality that is Kalem's prison, a prison of life itself. When we look at this episode, there are certain realities that we are reminded of when it comes to how the title game... You know, we all play the title game from time to time. <laughs> how the title game may be manifested in this episode. Tuvok and Bellana resisting, quote-unquote, breaking under torture and incarceration. Janeway, quote-unquote, resisting being helpless and alone on a planet where she's being tracked and hunted. These are... You know, these are very applicable to what resistance means in the title game. But those are just surface elements of of what I discovered about the meaning of this episode and the meaning of the title and how they, at least for me, aren't as obvious as Calum's quote unquote resistance to reality. So we've known people, people uh, in our lives, perhaps even ourselves at times, who are so unrealistically optimistic so stalwart in their beliefs that things are better than they seem even if the facts and the proof are stacked against them people suffering from abuse from violence from bullying from cancer from sickness from every possible factor under the sun that these people should have been broken by the sheer weight of cruelty of what has befallen them for years or perhaps decades but they won't they can't because once they do so they may never find their way back to enjoying even the smallest iota of life, of hope, right? That's what I see in Caleb. I do believe that even his, in his disillusionment, even in the reality that he created for himself, I do believe that he knows that his wife and his daughter are dead and that Janeway isn't Ralkana. But what choice does he have? You know, what is the better reality for him? To believe in hope? to try and resist and avenge what happened to them, or to accept the futility of his resistance and suffer that soul-crushing existence that that is his reality. I, for one, after seeing firsthand what the absence of hope can do to someone, especially
2: someone you love, I believe resistance is not futile. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Prototype.
1: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. I wonder if there will be a sequel to this episode titled Impedance. I am sure that the engineers in the audience got a charge out of that one. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.
0: Purchase new wiper blades
2: from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts